In the twilight years of the third millennium BC, after a long drawn out conflict fought by one generation after another for 200 years or more, Elamite invaders from the southeastern fringe of Mesopotamia came sweeping in to the already weakened lands of the Neo-Sumerian Empire. One by one, the formerly unified cities of the southern Mesopotamian plains broke away from Ibisin's rule, he being the unfortunate latest dynast to hold sway over the crumbling empire. Finally, by around 2000 BC, the Elamites succeeded in breaking down the walls of the once mighty city of Ur, the very symbol of Sumerian identity, and promptly extinguished the ruling family of the city. In the aftermath of the fall of Ur, the very last, and arguably the greatest Sumerian kingdom of the ancient world. Chaos reigned supreme once more in the land between the two rivers. Not only did the vengeful Elamites now hold sway over much of Mesopotamia, formerly held by the Sumerians for time immemorial, but ruthless Amorite warlords from beyond the Pale came flooding in to stake their own claims on the increasingly sought-after fertile lands of the city builders. Eventually, after the ashes finally cleared and the dust from the war began to settle, a number of successor states began to arise. Some of them survivors from the empire, others ruled over by warlike outsiders, such as the Amorites and the Gutians, who had seized the opportunity of the war to flood in from the mountains and deserts on the fringes of society, to claim a small chunk of the already ancient land for themselves. Most notable of these statelets and survivors was the influential city of Eshnunna, a Sumerian enclave situated far to the north of the traditional heartlands in the south. Eshnunna's Sumerian governors had survived the worst of the invasions due to their sheer geographical isolation from the heartlands of the Elamites beyond the Zagros Mountains in modern-day Iran. However much the rulers of Eshnunna may have mourned over the loss of their southern older brother, the fall of Ur also presented the opportunity for them to declare their own independence as a hereditary monarchy. Though it soon became clear that they would now have to contend with the other increasingly powerful kingdoms of the north. Alone. Another state to arise from the ashes of the Elamite occupation was Larsa. Like Eshnunna, it was already an ancient city, inhabited for a thousand years or more. Though unlike Sumerian Eshnunna, Larsa had been claimed by a clan of Amorite warlords. Fierce pastoralists attracted to the sedentary lands of the city builders by the ever-present allure of wealth and power. In time, they adopted many of the customs of the city builders, including the Sumerian gods. But nonetheless, they retained the ruthless militancy honed by their forefathers out in the arid wastes to the southwest. In the far north, 
along the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in modern-day northern Iraq, still more Amorite warlords gradually moved into the area, claiming more and more cities for their own, and in time, founding their own walled fortresses and citadels, each as independent-minded and fierce as the last. The most important of the states to survive the collapse of the empire was Isin. There, like Eshnunna, a native Sumerian governor by the name of Ishbi Era had survived the fall of Ur and proceeded to unify the surrounding cities one by one under his control. Finally, after a ten-year struggle, Ishbi Era succeeded in recapturing Ur from the Elamites and drove them back across the ancient border to their homelands past the Zagros Mountains. Though he died soon afterwards, Ishbi Era left his four-state coalition of Isin, Nippur, Uruk and Ur to his son, Shu-Ilishu. For the next 50 years, Isin fought out a long and devastating war against the Amorite rulers of Larsa. Both fielding armies, but despite their best efforts, neither being fully able to subjugate the other. In the north, meanwhile, cities that had been under the rule of one empire after another for hundreds of years, first under the Akkadians and then the Neo-Sumerians, seized the inherent strife engulfing the formerly all-powerful south to go their own way. Some under the control of regional governors turned kings, Others, like Larsa, under the control of Amorite warlords, turned sedentary monarchs. One of these powers, the city of Ashur, situated on the northern portion of the Tigris River, had originally been a western Semitic settlement. It had been added to the Akkadian Empire by the great king Sargon in around 2300 BC, and later the Neo-Sumerian Empire under Shulgi, more than two centuries later. By the beginning of the second millennium BC, Ashur had rebuilt its walls, a sure sign of its newfound independence, and it began trading extensively with the Western Semites living along the Mediterranean coast. As the years went by, traders from Ashur even began building their own trading centres in Eastern Asia Minor in order to build bridges and lucrative trade deals with the Hurrian and Hattian inhabitants there. These new links with the West were a sure sign of events to come. In a precursor to the next millennium and more, at least in part, Ashur was changing its orientation away from the South. To the west of Ashur, along the Euphrates River, another new power was arising. There, the city of Mari had also been extending its commercial tendrils over the years to the neighbouring cities. Particularly, like Ashur, to the Mediterranean coastline. And Mari grew ever richer as a result. Between these two increasingly powerful and wealthy cities, however, out in the plains between the two rivers, lay a shifting patchwork of Amorite chieftains. For the most part, 
These warlords seem to have fought amongst themselves for territory, but every once in a while, a strong leader would arise amongst the tribes to unite them under one banner and threaten to conquer the city dwellers. In the south, sometime around 1930 BC, the balance of power finally shifted dramatically away from the Neo-Sumerian successor state of Isin and towards Amorite-held Larsa. The latest king there, the fifth of the dynasty, Gungunum, had marched his armies deep into Elamite territory as a show of power, before briefly occupying the most holy of cities, Nippur, and even finally conquering Ur, thus destroying the legitimacy of the Isin dynasty for good. Quite remarkably, Gungunum, a proud descendant of Amorite conquerors, then began portraying himself as a restorer of the old Sumerian ways. In reality, Sumerian culture seems to have mostly already died out by this point. The other cities, such as Uruk, one by one, having already been replaced by ambitious Amorite newcomers. Some of them, no doubt, having previously fought in the armies of the various city-states. Over the coming years, this was a strategy that would later be adopted by generation after generation of kings. In the decades that followed, Isin and Larsa continued to wage a costly and lengthy series of wars over control of Nippur, the religious and spiritual heart of the Sumerian world. Seeing it change hands at least eight times during the largely fruitless fighting. In the north, meanwhile, Mari and Ashur remained in a state of quasi Cold War both attempting to become the foremost commercial power in the region, at the behest of the other. They each had armies and strong walls, though, by and large, they preferred to keep their enmity to a strictly commercial level, lest they succumb to the multitudes of other potential enemies around them. On their southern flank, one such new power, this one actually founded by Amorites, rather than being a pre-existing city conquered by them, had begun to develop. Its name was Babylon, and eventually it would have a greater part to play than arguably any other city of the ancient world. Echoing through the ages as so many of its contemporaries remain lost and forgotten. Whilst the formerly all-powerful cities of the south still found themselves locked into a near perpetual conflict the kings of Eshnunna seized the opportunity to leave their own cities unguarded and headed north along the Tigris to launch a surprise attack on the wealthy city of Ashur. No sooner had Eshnunna succeeded in taking the city and overthrowing its Amorite king did a newcomer arrive outside the gates at the head of a well-drilled army. His name was Shamshi Adad, and he was one of the Amorite warlords of the plains. A ruthless warrior prince, probably hailing from nearby Ekalatum. Shamshi Adad seems to have spent much of his life up until this point, serving as a sword for hire in the armies of other Amorite kings, and attempting to seize power for himself in any way that he could. 
By around 1800 BC, however, Shamshi Adad had succeeded in unifying a number of tribes around him, and in the coming weeks, they made light work of the army from Eshnunna, already overexposed as it was in hostile territory. Not only did Shamshi Adad then seize the city of Ashur for himself, but in the years that followed, he went much further, establishing it and the surrounding cities as military powerhouses, before embarking on an epic series of campaigns that saw his rule expand over the entirety of northern Mesopotamia, establishing a northern powerhouse of an empire for the very first time in history. Though in truth, Shamshi Adad's state didn't survive for long after his death. Like so many other short-lived kingdoms and empires that would follow down over the long millennia, burning brightly and going out just as magnificently, he certainly succeeded in setting a precedent. Power was shifting to the north. The old world was dead, and a new one would arise from the ashes. In the centuries and millennia that followed Shamshi Adad's death, the strong northern power base and unity that he forged in northern Mesopotamia, through his own sheer force of will, survived. Operating out of a firm heartland in the immediate vicinity of Ashur, these disparate peoples of northern Mesopotamia would increasingly coalesce until a brand new identity was forged. One that in time would set the world ablaze. We know them today as the Assyrians. In the years and centuries after his death, Shamshi Adad's legacy only grew and grew, eventually seeing him regarded as the founding father of the Assyrians, a kingdom that would eventually arise again on the northern Mesopotamian plain to become one of the most feared and devastating of all the empires of the ancient world. Like so many all-powerful rulers of the ancient world, very little is known of Shamshi Adad's early life before his rise to power. The legacy that he left during his lifetime was so great, however, much like the earlier ruler Sargon of Akkad, that a whole host of legends and tales later arose in the long generations after his death. Out of these sagas and stories, a number of key locations emerge, all of them Amorite city-states of the plains. According to one tradition, Shamshi Adad was the son of Illa Kabkabu, the first known king of Ekalatum, a city located just to the north of Ashur that was established by Amorites. Unlike Ashur itself, Ekalatum's conflict with Mari was undeniably hot, a situation that both Shamshi Adad and the king of Mari, Lagilitum, had inherited from their fathers. Upon ascending to the throne in around 1810 BC, Shamshi Adad attempted to extend his rule into the valley along the Kabor River, but was defeated by Yagid Lim, the king of Mari, 
After a further series of skirmishes involving another Assyrian ruler, Naram-Sim, the king of Ashur, Shamshi-Adad fled south along the river, finding refuge at another of the rising powers founded by fellow Amorites, the city of Babylon. After a number of years serving the Amorites of Babylon as a mercenary commander, potentially gaining vital military experience, Shamshi-Adad moved back up the Tigris to reclaim Ekelatum, an outpost that stood just north of Ashur and may have served as a sort of military outpost to the city. He stayed there for three years, either having seized the settlement or in service to the ruling dynasty of Ashur, either under Naram-Sim or his successor. Upon the arrival of the armies of Eshnunna, however, Shamshi-Adad bursts into history like a raging lion, defeating the invaders and using the success to set himself up as the new king of the city. Almost immediately, he began an ambitious plan of expansion, apparently wishing no less than to build an empire to rival that of the ever-growing power of Larsa to the south. Now under the control of an Amorite warlord named Rin Sin. Before setting out on his first set of conquests, Shamshi Adad put his son Ishmi Dagan in charge of Ekalatum. Then, just as quickly as he had arrived, he set out on the first of innumerable Assyrian military campaigns in history. To begin with, Shamshi Adad seems to have set about seizing all of the northern lands between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, unifying the Amorite tribes there, and no doubt enlisting many of the previously hostile warlords into his armies. Next on the agenda, and much to the horror of the sophisticated and relatively unwarlike dynasty that ruled there, he marched on the other great power of northern Mesopotamia, Mari executing its king, Yadud-Lim, and installing another of his own sons, Yasmar-Adad, to rule over the city in his stead. Unwilling to leave any potential rivals to his power, Shamshi-Adad's purge of the elites in Mari was swift and brutal, seeing nearly every relative of Yadun-Lim executed. Just one royal prince managed to escape the bloodbath, having married a daughter of the king of neighbouring Yamad, based at the city of Aleppo. His name was Zimri Lim, and eventually he would return to his native city, though not until long after Shamshi Adad's death. Shamshi Adad, meanwhile, now showing all of the future Assyrian traits of modesty by calling himself Master of the Universe, carried on his conquests seizing lands as far east of the Tigris as the Zagros Mountains, territories still held by the rugged Gutian nomads on behalf of Elamite overlords to their south. According to inscriptions and cuneiform tablets excavated all over northern Mesopotamia, Shamshi-Adad was a master of siege warfare, possessing all of the latest military techniques of the age and a large elite army to enforce his will upon those unfortunate enough to come up against him. To the north, he conquered the cities of Arbala and Nineveh, 
establishing, arguably for the first time, a firm northern triangle between the Upper Tigris and the Lower Zab rivers, cornered by the three major cities of the Assyrian Kingdom, Ashur, Arbela and Nineveh, unifying the area under a single dynasty, a dynasty known to us today as the Old Assyrian Empire. Despite the fact that he, like the other warlords now holding sway in Old Sumeria, was in fact an Amorite outsider. The archaeological evidence of Shamshi Adad's reign is staggering. He built intricate temples all over his lands, over a vast geographical distance. According to his inscriptions, rather than impose taxes and tributary status to existing elites, he installed his own governors and garrisons everywhere he went, diehard followers who were personally loyal to him. The evidence suggests that aside from being a gifted military commander, Shamshi Adad distinguished himself by being an exceptionally capable administrator and propagandist, effectively portraying himself as an Assyrian, even altering the Assyrian king list to legitimise himself. He kept firm controls on all matters of state, ranging from high policy down to the appointment of individual officials, and the dispatching of provisions and supplies. Extraordinarily detailed records and dispatches have been excavated from his reign, providing us with unparalleled glimpses into his personal dealings. Perhaps most notably, he remained perpetually disappointed with the performance of one of his sons, Yasma Adad, ruling on his behalf in the conquered city of Mari. One of the cuneiform letters in question reads, Are you a child, not a man? Have you no beard on your chin? And another in regards to Yasma Adad's brother, Ishmi Dagan, ruling up in Ekalatan, reads, While here your brother is victorious, down there you lie about among the women. In addition to pure military might, spies and propaganda were often used to win over rival cities. Though unlike the much later Neo-Assyrian Empire, Shamshi Adad did allow conquered territories to maintain some of their earlier practices. Usually, the main changes to occur would be at the very top of the society in question. Though in some cases, such as Qatar, the local rulers of the city maintained authority, but became vassals when they were incorporated into his kingdom. This was perhaps one of the main causes of his success and subsequent rapid downfall of the empire after his own death. Shamshi Adad's architectural achievements were impressive, evident in ruins from the Tigris to the Zagros Mountains. In Nineveh, he used state resources to rebuild the Ishtar Temple, and in Ashur, he poured money into magnificent structures. His crowning achievement, however, was his capital city. Rather than utilise one of the already existing settlements between the two rivers, True to his ambitious and wide-reaching tendencies, he opted to create his own. 
fairly early in his reign, Shamshi Adad took over the long abandoned town of Shekna, today known as Tel Leilan. Seeing the great potential in the rich agricultural production of the region, renaming it Subat Enlil, meaning the residence of the god Enlil in the Akkadian language, still spoken throughout his realm, he decided to convert it into his personal residence and capital city, perhaps viewing himself as the founder of a great empire to rival his predecessor, Sargon of Akkad. Utilising the best craftsmen from all over his lands, a royal palace was ordered to be built, and a temple acropolis, to which a straight paved road led from the city gate. There was also a planned residential area, and the entire city was enclosed by a cyclopean wall. The size of the city was around 220 acres, and at its peak, it may have housed a population of around 20,000 people. Yet, despite all of Shamshi Adad's protests to the contrary, there were still other major players to rival his power. To the east, over the Zagros Mountains, the kings of Elam were always a threat, and now increasingly sought to try their mettle against northern Mesopotamia, as well as southern. Closer to home still, the ever-present kings of Eshnunna, survivors from the Sumerian past, also had to be dealt with, usually through diplomatic means. Back in the south, meanwhile, Rim-Sim of Larsa finally succeeded in conquering Isin, thus ending a war that had lasted for 200 years, and definitively establishing his city as not only the strongest power of the south, but the successor to the cultural legacy of the Sumerian world. Though in reality, he had just stamped out the last Sumerian state to really call itself that with any authenticity. The old gods survived, and the Sumerian language for a while, mostly for religious ceremonies, but by and large, besides being an ideal to look back upon and aspire to, the old days of Sumeria were in the past. A new world had dawned, and increasingly, it would orient itself towards the north. By around 1794 BC, in a near unprecedented achievement, just two men held nearly all of the Mesopotamian plain between them, Rimsin being master of the south and Shamshi Adad master of the north. The only other independent state that survived between the two rivers by reason of its geography, was Babylon, that same Amorite city where Shamshi Adad had spent some of his youth. The city was simply too far to the south to be seen as an issue for Shamshi Adad, and too far to the north to be an issue for Rimsin. Shamshi Adad may have even been a distant relative to the kings of Babylon. The twelve kings who live in tents cited on both the Babylonian king list and the Assyrian king list, both bearing the same names. Whether this is true or not, the two men certainly allied with each other, with Shamshi Adad, of course, being acknowledged as the more important of the two, and Babylon's young king, tributary 
to him. Two years later, however, Shamshi Adad was dead, and within just a handful of generations, so was his empire. That young king had learned a thing or two from his mentor, and in time, his power would grow to such an extent that he would eventually eclipse the great Assyrian ruler himself. His name was Hammurabi. It didn't take long for Shamshi Adad's empire to unravel when news of his death reached the various cities and provinces. In regards to his son, Yasma Adad, it appears that his concerns proved all too real, with Mari declaring its independence once more almost immediately. Ishmi Dagan managed to keep hold of Ekalatum, though he was unable to restore power to the city despite his many attempts and was himself now the repeated target of nearby powers. In particular, Zimri Lim, the exiled and vengeful prince of Mari, who had returned from Yamad to reclaim his birthright following Shamshi Adad's death. It was the Elamites who finally conquered Ekalatum in 1765, forcing Ishmi Dagan to flee south to the court of his traditional ally, Hammurabi of Babylon. Hammurabi, in turn, helped him to reclaim his throne, but at a cost, of course. Ekalatum and Ashur subsequently became vassals, subservient to the kings of Babylon, who, over the coming decades, came to control all of Mesopotamia, unifying almost all of Shamshi Adad's and Rinsin's kingdoms into a unified whole. Though, of course, as was the standard of the age, the empire lasted only a few decades after his death, before collapsing once more into rival powers. Though the Assyrians would suffer setbacks over the years, seeing their cities conquered time and time again by outsiders, and themselves forced to pay tribute to more powerful neighbours on more than one occasion, for the most part, their newfound sense of identity would survive down the generations, with their culture more or less intact, never forgetting the legacy of Shamshi Adad. They bided their time, waiting for their moment in the sun again, until finally, from around 1000 BC, they burst out onto the world scene like a deluge, this time destroying all in their path in a brutal harvest of war, and going on to form the largest empire that the world had ever known. Unlike previous empires, the Neo-Assyrians, utilising perhaps the first professional standing army in history, along with grotesquely violent methods of subjugation, made no allowances for conquered populations. The choice was simple. Submit or die. 